a while back, I uh, saw an advertisement for a coffee membership at a local restaurant where you could buy into this membership for a monthly fee and then get unlimited coffee. I thought, that's not too bad of a deal. I think I'll do that. What sweetened the deal and kind of put me over the, the edge was the fact that you got the first month free. So I thought, this is great. <clears throat> I can sign up, see how it goes. No strings attached. And so I joined and uh, kind of because of the fact that this place was not somewhere I went often anyway, it was a little bit out of the way, and the fact, this is going to be shocking and you'll be all disappointed in me probably, but I can't really tell the difference between gourmet coffee and Folgers. So like, I'm just happy with coffee. Um, I never really used the membership. And so before it ended, I went ahead and just canceled and uh, didn't have to pay anything. Fast forward six months or so, I was talking with one of the elders here at the church, and he was telling me how wonderful this coffee membership was. He was a part of it, and I mean, really, kind of how it revolutionized his life. That might be an overstatement. It's just this how fantastic this free coffee membership was for a small fee each month. So I thought, let me just give it another try. So as I'm talking to this brother, I'm like on the website for this restaurant, I see something about free, I'm like, great, this is good. So I go ahead and I, I click like subscribe. They already have my credit card information. So I'm thinking this is, this is fantastic. I have another month just to see how this goes. A few weeks later, I'm looking at the debit card statement <clears throat> and realize that they have charged me for a month already of this coffee membership. And I'm like incensed. I mean, not that this is big money, but I'm like, this should have been free. So I go on their website and find out that <clears throat> what used to say your first month is free now merely says one month free. And in the small print, it says with the first month payment. I'm like, oh, I see what happened here. Now, again, it's not a big deal. We're not talking much money. But I was irritated that I did not take the time to read the fine print, to understand the commitment before I hit subscribe. I just made an emotional decision, thinking I had all the information I needed, when in fact, I lacked some really vital information. Now again, for the third time, coffee membership, insignificant. But the point I'm making applies more broadly, doesn't it? Some of you know what it's like to make maybe a major purchase, or maybe to get into a significant relationship without taking the time to read through all the fine print, without taking the time to consider all the details. Maybe you were driven by emotion or carelessness, or maybe it was that you wanted this relationship or this purchase to work out, and you thought, I'll worry about the details later. Like, I can change him, or I can find enough money to make the payment each month. I'm sure it'll all work out. We can approach our relationship with Jesus like that. <clears throat> maybe you were stuck in the middle of a crisis and you thought, you know what, maybe God can get me out of this. I'll start praying, I'll start attending church, I'll put a little bit of money in the offering box each week. Or maybe you became aware of the horrors and the, the tragedy that falls those who die apart from Christ. In fact, there's kind of a whole cottage industry within evangelicalism that kind of rises to the surface in some parts of uh, evangelicalism every October. 
ministries dedicated to like scaring young people with the reality of what hell is like so that people will make an emotional response and therefore decide to follow Jesus. And maybe that's what you did. Or maybe when someone presented the gospel to you, the gospel was presented as this wonderful plan to make your life better and to give you what you wanted. And so you thought to yourself, why not? Like who wouldn't want to trust in Jesus to get everything I want? There are lots of reasons people are attracted to Jesus, but the Bible is clear that not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will actually enter the kingdom of God. And not everyone who claims to love God is actually a disciple of Jesus Christ. And so in our text this morning, Jesus gives us vitally important truth about what it means to be a disciple Jesus takes those things that we would be tempted to put in fine print when we share the gospel about picking up our cross and following him or about denying ourselves, or about counting the cost or about hating everyone else or about renouncing all we have. And Jesus takes those things out of the fine print and he puts them in bold font so that we know clearly right up front this is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ so there's no confusion. In fact, notice three times in our text this morning, he says, without this, you cannot be my disciple. You cannot be my disciple. You cannot be my disciple. I mean, that's bold. And since we are here as men and women who want to know God and be disciples of Jesus Christ, it is imperative that we understand Jesus' message to us this morning. So, Luke, our author, begins by telling us in verse 15 that large crowds were following Jesus. Large crowds are following Jesus. Most of us would think that this is like success, more people following Jesus. In fact, we like it when more people follow us. I know I'm always a little giddy when like, I open my Instagram, like three more people wanted to follow me. No idea why, but they do. Praise God, Right? And it's likely if Jesus had hired a public relations firm here in the first century, this is exactly what they would have hoped for. But what happens here and what happens elsewhere in Jesus' ministry is that Jesus responds to the swelling crowds by clearly communicating the cost of being his follower. This is not the only place that the crowd is growing, and then Jesus dishes out some of his clearest and hardest teaching. Elsewhere, Jesus will see the crowds growing, and he'll say, you know what, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can't be my follower. Like, what? What are you doing, Jesus? Like, this is the opposite. (laughs) People are getting freaked out. They're leaving. They're not wanting to follow you now. It's as though Jesus is less concerned with the size of his following and more concerned with the genuineness of their commitment. And that's exactly what Jesus does here. He is about to thin the herd. He's about to reveal the not-so-fine print parts of what it means to follow him. 
And his goal then, as is his goal this morning, is that we would stop and think through the cost of being a follower of Jesus. Like what Jesus is doing here is getting us to stop and thoughtfully reflect on what it means to be a disciple. Sometimes I'll have friends who will hear about the joys that we've had in ministering and partnering with the the brothers and sisters in Micronesia for the sake of the kingdom. And uh, they'll hear about the mission work and all the things that God is doing there through those brothers and sisters and the joy of kind of coming alongside them and supporting them. And they'll say something like, all right, I'm in. Next time, I'm going. And oftentimes, I'll try to add in, okay, that's great. A few things you need to know about ahead of time, first of all. Like, you need to get your passport up to date. It's going to be expensive to travel there. You need to know we're going to be gone for a couple of weeks from home. You need to know that it's like over 22 hours in the air, over four flights alone, just to get there. You need to know that when we're there, it's really hot. We're outside most of the time. There's a lot of walking. It's 14-hour time difference, right? Like, I'm not trying to discourage them from coming. I'm just trying to set their expectation. Like, this is what it means to join in to this ministry venture. And this is what Jesus is doing here. Before you jump in, before you start following me around the countryside and think that makes you part of the family, or before you think that all you need to do is just say a prayer or walk an aisle or sign a card, you need to know the cost of discipleship. So what Jesus does here is he gives us three calls really about what it means to be a disciple. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at those three calls of discipleship, and then we're going to circle around at the end and try to answer four questions that flow out of those calls of discipleship. So three things we need to hear about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. First, being a disciple of Jesus means loving him above all others. <clears throat> Look at verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. I'm just going to let that sit there for a moment because it's meant to be shocking. Some of you who maybe are new to the church or maybe it's your first time here this morning or you've never really read much of the Bible, this is the first time you've heard something like this, and maybe you're thinking, okay, where are the exits? Like, how do we get out? Or, honey, let's, like, we need to get our kids from childcare. We need to leave because they're talking about hating their family members. It's not the church we want to be a part of. Maybe others of you never really liked your family to begin with, and so you're like, let's keep talking, right? This is great. I don't know. Like, what is Jesus talking about. Because what we don't want to do is just read one verse and run off with our applications. We need to understand what the whole Bible says. As Tony Merida helpfully has said, the Bible is not just holy, it is harmonious. And the Bible has lots to say about families and relationships. We don't have time to go into all of it, so let me just give you the Cliff Notes version. The Bible tells us that families are designed by God. Children, in fact, are commanded to honor their parents, husbands to love their wives, wives to love their husbands, parents are to love and provide for their children. And we could go on, but you see that the Bible teaches that, in fact, we are not called to actually 
hate our family, we're called to love our family. Which means then, some of you are thinking, well, okay, if we're told in some parts of the Bible to love our family, and here Jesus says to hate our family, is this then a contradiction in the Bible? Like, that's a valid question. And again, we need to understand what's going on here. We need to look at the context. So the context is the cost of discipleship. Jesus is teaching us, don't just hang around me and think that that makes you a disciple. Jesus is teaching the crowd and he's teaching us something about personal allegiances. In fact, verse 33 at the end of this narrative helps us to kind of understand where Jesus is going because it summarizes this entire section, verse 33. Jesus says, so therefore any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus is intending to shock those who hear so that we would stop and evaluate where Jesus ranks among those whom we love. And since for most of us, the people that we love the dearest are our family members, Jesus is saying, okay, to be my disciple means that your love for me is so great that even your love for your family members is so far below that, it looks like hate in comparison to your incredible love for me. In other words, it's not even a close race between your love for me first and your love for a family member second. Your love for me stands alone. Now that's strong. The second thing to hear about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus is that being a disciple of Jesus means accepting the sacrifices that discipleship brings. Verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. As a kid growing up in Michigan, I remember there was a a house that sat by the highway. I'm using that term house loosely here. It was really a structure. And I don't know how long it sat there, but it was an uncompleted building. It looked like it was designed to be this incredible home, like mammoth, sort of palatial estate. And yet, at some point in time, years, possibly even decades prior, for some unknown reason, they stopped doing work on this house. So like it was framed in, but there were no shingles on the roof. It was just sheeting. And just the walls, there's no Tyvek or paper or wrap on the house. It was just the, the sheeting, the OSB board. And so it had sat there so long, uncompleted, that the boards were rotting away, the, this, the, the roof boards were rotted, had big holes in them, and the whole structure was leaning 
from the winds. It was not secured. And every time we drove past, you always wondered, like, I wonder what happened, that someone started so strong, started out so well, with such an incredible plan for how this would turn out. Tragically, they never finished. They never completed it. And Jesus says that there are people whose spiritual lives are like that. People who walked an aisle or voiced a prayer, but they didn't count the cost. And so when suffering or trials come, or when ridicule comes because of Jesus Christ, they didn't last. In fact, we saw this back in Luke chapter 8, didn't we? Jesus tells us in Luke 8 how his word, scripture, the Bible, is like seed. And as the seed is scattered, as his word is proclaimed, it lands on different kinds of soils. The soils representing different kinds of lives and different kinds of hearts. And he tells us in Luke chapter 8, the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while and in time of testing fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and the riches and the pleasures of life. And their fruit does not mature. As for that, in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. This is why Jesus tells us that whoever does not bear his own cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. And what's the cross that we're to pick up? What's the cross that we're to bear in verse 27? Well, that cross is both different and the same as the cross that Jesus bore. It's different because Jesus already died on the cross for the sin and in the place of all who believe. He has already paid the penalty for the sin of everyone who trusts in him by faith for salvation. So his cross is different than the cross we pick up and carry because our crosses don't cleanse us of sin. And yet, when Jesus tells us to carry our cross, he means that like him on his cross, we are to die to ourselves. We are to stop living as though we are in control of our lives. We're to hand over the keys to our new Savior and King. In fact, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 16, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And so being a disciple means stopping and counting the cost. It doesn't simply mean adding something on. It means denying ourself. Being a Christian is worth it, but it requires us to give up control of our lives. It requires us to go and study his message to us and then align our lives accordingly. It requires us giving him primary allegiance And it will come with a temporary cost. I say temporary because whatever cost we incur in following Jesus Christ in the here and now will always be worth it. It will always be worth it in eternity. But there are sacrifices. Our allegiance to Jesus Christ as his disciples will change our relationships. It will affect 
how we spend our time. It will inform how we spend our money. It will require us going against the grain of our selfish pride. It will mean forgiving those whom we would not otherwise forgive. It will mean submitting our political views and other opinions as secondary to the unity that we have in Jesus Christ with other believers. It does come with a cost. Being a disciple of Jesus means accepting those costs and accepting the sacrifices that discipleship brings. A third, being a disciple of Jesus means surrendering everything to his purposes. We won't spend as much time on this point because it's basically a summary of the first two points, but notice again how strong Jesus' words are in verse 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer, it is of no use either for soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus is teaching us that we are like salt. And the value of salt is that salt is distinctive. Salt is different from that which salt is surrounded by and placed in. Salt has value in its distinctiveness. It has value because it is different. But when salt is impure, when salt loses that distinctiveness, when salt is affected by the things around it, it no longer functions as it's designed to function. And Jesus is saying, if you are to be my disciple, it requires a change in allegiances. It requires renouncing everything you have. It requires looking through life in a different perspective. Jesus isn't interested in gaining followers for the sake of having more followers. He isn't interested in bandwagon fans. Jesus doesn't need publicity. He is God in the flesh. What Jesus has come to do is to make disciples. And he is teaching us clearly here that disciples give it all up. They leave it all behind and they follow Jesus. In 1519, the year 1519, some of you history buffs maybe already know this. In 1519, a man named Hernan Cortez landed with his large band of uh, expeditionary forces in Mexico. Their goal was to march 200 miles inland and to take the Aztec capital. But he had a problem. Cortez knew that his men had just left home. They had crossed the Atlantic, and now they were... to embark on a 200-mile journey inland into a strange territory where they had never been before. He knew that they would encounter all kinds of trials and adversity, and he knew that they would be incredibly tempted when the going got tough to turn around, to board the ships, and to head back across the Atlantic. So Cortez hatched a plan, and one night he secretly ordered that 10 of his 11 ships be burned and completely destroyed, thus cutting off the retreat of his men. 
Yet long before Cortez burned the ships, Jesus, preaching to this very crowd, said, If any one of you does not renounce all that he has, he cannot be my disciple. In fact, the Apostle Paul would echo this same theme when he wrote to the church in Philippi. He said, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. For the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. You hear it in Jesus, you hear it in Paul. Jesus is not about attracting half-hearted followers. He is about calling devoted disciples, which requires a shift in allegiance, requires a change in priorities. It doesn't require just an add-on Christianese app to help us do life a little differently. It requires an entirely new operating system. But I'm wondering, even as you sit here this morning, maybe you are thinking of some questions as you're trying to square this with what Jesus says elsewhere and what the Bible teaches. Maybe there are some questions that come to mind, and I can think of at least four that we're going to address right now. There are probably lots more questions, but we're just going to hit these four. First, does this crazy high standard of discipleship contradict the fact that salvation is free? That's a good question. You've all been thinking that, right? That's exactly what I was thinking. Like since salvation is a free gift of God's grace to be received by the open hand of faith, then doesn't Jesus' teaching here mean that there are now entrance requirements? So how does that fit together? Here's how it fits. Yes, salvation is a free gift of God's grace to be received by the open hand of faith. And yes, we contribute nothing to our salvation except the sin that makes it necessary. But what Jesus is doing here in Luke chapter 14 is not explaining how someone becomes a disciple. He is demonstrating what it means to be a true disciple. Like the New Testament is clear that there are men and women who will say, I trust in Jesus, or I prayed a prayer, or I am a Christian. And yet when you look at their life over time, you see that nothing has changed. Like their love for God and their love for his word and their love for his people and their love for his mission doesn't grow. Like they don't love God. They aren't accepting the sacrifices that come from being a follower of Jesus. They talk the talk, but they do not walk the walk. And Jesus is saying here that being a disciple means more than just saying that you love me. It means actually loving me. Because Jesus is calling disciples. And disciples of Jesus don't just trust him as Savior, they also honor him as Lord. And this brings up another important question. It's directly related, and the question is this. If I've already failed to do what Jesus says, 
Now what? This is the question I had. I'm studying the text this week, and I'm thinking, okay. There are times quite often where the Holy Spirit convicts me that I am desiring my wife and loving my wife, desiring to please Tara even more than I'm desiring to please the Lord. There are times when I have greater affection for my children than I do the Savior of my soul. And maybe you're there too. Maybe you're thinking as we've read this text this morning, okay, if the standard for discipleship is everything that Jesus says here, then I'm sunk. Because sometimes, in fact, often I end up loving my family more than I love Jesus. I turn away sometimes from sacrificing for the cause of Christ. I don't share my faith as often as, my, as I should. In fact, sometimes in certain environments, I really hope that no one even knows that I'm a Christian. So does this mean that I am not truly a disciple of Jesus Christ? And to accurately answer that question would require, again, more time than we have and would require the nuanced distinctives of your own life. But the simple answer to that is that it could be that you're not a disciple of Jesus Christ, but you probably are. And really, the the litmus test for that is a matter of the heart. Like, do you desire the things of God? Do you desire to desire the things of God, even when you don't desire them? Like, right now I'm in a season where I'm just not desiring prayer, but I wish I desired to pray. I desire to desire. And when you fail and when you sin and when you put other people and other things ahead of Jesus and the Holy Spirit convicts you of that, do you repent and get up and keep on trusting in Jesus? And if your answer to that is yes, then I'd say you are a disciple of Jesus Christ. If you are trusting in him by faith and even when you fall and even when you stumble, you get up and trust in him by faith. And this is where it's helpful for us to remember that we always need the gospel. Because if perfection at these things in Luke 14 is required to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, then we are all sunk, aren't we? In fact, Jesus' first disciples were sunk. Because they didn't do these things very well either. They often failed. In fact, in just a short time from this, I mean, they have Jesus in the flesh, and he tells them, I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to be tried, I'm going to die, and then I'm going to come back. Like, yep, we're ready, we're prepared. Spent three years with Jesus. Jesus is arrested, what happens? They all take off. They flee. One of them runs out of his clothes, he's so afraid, right, when he leaves. Talk about not taking up your cross and following Jesus. So clearly, perfection is impossible. Or at least our perfection. Because there is one who was perfectly obedient to the Father. There is one who perfectly submitted himself 
to the Father's will, who perfectly accepted the sacrifices and the suffering that came from following the Father's plan. There is one who renounced everything, even the privileges of his divinity to come to earth and to live without sin and to pick up his cross and to die as a substitute on the cross for our sin. You see, friends, Jesus perfectly fulfilled the very thing he calls us to. And so when we follow and fail, and when we pick up our cross and then stumble and drop it, we can rest in the fact that we who trust in him by faith are not saved by our performance, but by his righteousness, by his perfection, by his work applied to our account. This brings us to question number three. Isn't Jesus making our evangelism harder here? It seems like that's what's happening. Maybe some of you were like all week long just kind of gearing up to share the gospel with a family member at Thanksgiving this week. And you're like, there's going to be a family member or a friend around the table who doesn't know Jesus. And I'm just trying to like get myself prepared, right? I'm going to go to church, I'm going to worship with the church Sunday morning, I'm going to get all fired up, I'm going to get all inspired, I'm going to get all charged up, and I'm going to be ready going into Thanksgiving week to share the gospel. And then we have Luke 14. Jesus is like, if you don't renounce all that you have, you can't be my disciple. If you don't hate your family members, you can't be my disciple. If you don't count the cost, you can't be my disciple. And you're like, great. I was trying to find a way to make the gospel palatable. But isn't that part of the problem? Again, if we thought that Jesus' mission was just bigger numbers, it would be that Jesus is making evangelism harder. But remember, Jesus' mission is to make disciples, to make followers, not fans. So how does this impact our evangelism? I think when we share the gospel in light of this text, we need to remember a couple of things. First, we are called by God as his followers to speak the gospel and to live the gospel. But ultimately, it is God that causes the gospel to change someone's life. If we don't remember that, then we become prey, P-R-E-Y, to all kinds of pragmatic efforts to water down the gospel or to round out the hard edges of the gospel or to think if we could just get the tumblers just right, share just the right part of our testimony, just the right part of the good parts of following Jesus and just the right parts of the eternal reward and we get that mixture ever so delicately in the right place, then someone will just have to respond, of course. Like who wouldn't? But let me ask you, even if someone says what you want them to say after you share the gospel, if you have sold them something about following Jesus and only told them that it will make them happier or that it will make them feel better, or you've offered to them some other temporary benefit without telling them about the cross that they will bear or about surrendering their control to Jesus, do you think they'll last? Do you think that they have actually turned 
denied themselves and are trusting in Jesus Christ, or are they just trusting in themselves, and Jesus is a really easy way to get what they want? Brothers and sisters, we need to remember in all our gospel living that the cross always comes before the crown, and we need to remember in all of our gospel presentation and speaking that the cross comes before the crown. Which brings us to our last question, maybe the most important one, because it's really the root of all the others, and it's this. How do I know if renouncing all I have is worth it? Now, just as a disclaimer, that could be the subject of a whole series of sermons. So we're just going to answer that question from one vantage point. And even then, we're just going to answer it briefly. And I want to answer it by asking a question. And it's a question we all have to wrestle with. It's a question that we sang this morning. And we answered, and probably some of us answered without even thinking about it. And the question is this, is God worthy of our complete surrender? Is he worthy of us renouncing all that we have? Is he worthy of our picking up our cross and following him? Is he worthy of our submitting every other relationship below our relationship with Jesus Christ? Is he worthy? You see, the creator of all things, the Bible is emphatic, is worthy. He is worthy of all blessing and honor and glory. And one of the reasons, one of the many reasons that we know that he is, is from the testimony we get from those who are in the presence of God right now who aren't limited as we are. And in fact, we read earlier about the testimony of those who are in the presence of God right now and who aren't limited as we are. But let me just remind you from Revelation chapter 5, John says, Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures, the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. John is seeing a picture of what is going on in heaven. And what he sees is all of these people gathered around the throne of God in heaven. This is happening right now. And they're saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. You see, friends, those who are in the presence of God, who also know something about our world here. Do not find it difficult to determine if God is worthy or not of worship and glory and honor. Those who have a vantage point that we don't quite have yet, say to us, 
in this testimony. Is he worthy of this? He is. And so is renouncing all that we have, is suffering worth the reward? Is God worthy of this? He is. We who were made by a good and wise God for his glory, who were made for relationship with him, who were designed to find our highest purpose and greatest joy in him, we who now are called to worship him because he is worthy. So brothers and sisters, let us lay aside the sin that so easily entangles us. Let us lay aside the competing loves. Let us pick up our cross. Let us count the cost. Let us follow Jesus. Let us renounce all else. And when we fall, Let us get back up looking to Jesus who succeeded where we have failed. Let's have him in our sights. Let's have him as our vision. We might count everything else as a loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. Would you stand with me?